0: 128 of ice coffee, Argentina, land of silver, takes centre stage. While I've given quite a bit of background into the political and social drivers at play in Europe, North America, Japan and Oceania, in mapping the motivations behind various Antarctic efforts from those spaces, I've given Argentine interests a bare recounting of activity at Laurie Island and in the Southern Ocean whaling industry, and in efforts to stake ground under the Argentine Traband during the Second World War. I'm going to try to remedy that oversight now with a brief outline of Argentine history to lay the groundwork for the next chapters in Antarctic history, in which the land of silver plays a significant role. Native populations occupied the land between the Andes and the Atlantic Ocean, we now call Argentina, for thousands of years. The largest populations occupied the verdant northern regions, farming maize and manioc and hunting game. The further south people lived, the more their lifestyle tended toward nomadic hunter-gatherer clans, as the colder climate made farming, even to a subsistence level, difficult. Incan conquests saw a lot of northern populations incorporated into that growing empire around the same time the Renaissance kicked off in Europe but southern tribes remained untouched by outside influences until the arrival of Spanish and Portuguese adventurers in the 16th century. Early attempts at settlements came under attack from native populations and never lasted long. It was conquistadors, pressing south from their conquests among the Inca, that saw the land gradually settled by Spanish interests, native populations rapidly diminishing under the dual pressures of enslavement to the service of the invaders, and the diseases the invaders brought with them. Unfamiliar to local immune systems, and pressure cooked to high virulence in the densely populated port cities of Europe, these diseases ran rampant among the indigenous communities. Eager to forestall Portuguese ambitions in the area, a Spanish expeditionary force established a settlement on the shores of the Rio de la Plata in 1580. The name, River of Silver, arose because the local people traded with the Spanish in that metal, but the territory around what we now know as Buenos Aires doesn't feature much Argentite ore, so the new port didn't fire up economically until the local land began to yield ranching profits, an early attempt at settlement having left behind a breeding population of cattle that flourished in the pampas. The Estancias established under the expeditionary force rounded up the descendant cohorts of cows and the fertile ground kept the offspring coming and the beef well beefed up. Buenos Aires served as the principal port for slavers to swap out a cargo of Africans for a cargo of agricultural produce before making the next leg of their triangular Atlantic journey. The port also served as a hub for silver smuggled out of other territories, and Buenos Aires was on its way to becoming one of the world's richest cities by the 17th century. Jesuit missionaries, operating tax-free, farmed the land and the people to Spanish advantage, though the tune changed after the Bourbons rose to the Spanish throne in the wake of the War of the Spanish Succession. Seeing the Jesuits' tax-free operations as income lost, the Spanish crown kicked the missionaries out of Spanish colonies. While the missionaries stopped their mission, the religion took root, syncretizing local animist faiths and remaining the dominant religious demographic today. African slaves served on the Estancias as house servants and in cottage industry crafts, half the population of the land being African or African-descended by the mid-18th century. In the 1770s, the Bourbons declared Buenos Aires the capital of the Viceroyalty of the Rio de la Plata an area much larger than present-day Argentina, incorporating what we now know as Uruguay, Paraguay and a large swathe of Peru. Many local-born citizens resented the Spanish Crown's monopoly on trade, leading to internal tensions with pro-monarchists, heightened by trade restrictions imposed by British maritime blockades in response to wars in North America and Europe. British forces garrisoned Buenos Aires in the early 19th century. Local militias kicked them out, galvanising a sense of autonomy and piquing anti-monarchy sentiment. Napoleon saved the region from the need for immediate civil war by kicking the Bourbon dynasty off the Spanish throne. Local forces kicked the Viceroy out of office in the Révolution de Mayo in 1810, and in 1816, General José de San Martín declared the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata off the back of an armed struggle with the final vestiges of Spanish governance. Peru and Paraguay separated from what became Argentina at this point in the story. Two decades of civil war ensued as the provinces played out a power struggle between urban and rural interests, the former seeking centralised government and the latter wanting independent provincial control. Governor of Buenos Aires since 1829, Juan Manuel de Rosas, became president of a united Argentina in 1835, the urban unitarists having won the battle for the nation's governance. De Rosas, led by violence, suppressing his opponents and detractors by brutal means until his overthrow in 1852, his period in power leaving a trail of dead and oppressed people, but a united Argentina... Because even ideologically opposed people will find common ground when facing a bigoted sociopath with a pet police force. No, wait. The USA just demonstrated that's not the case. Anywho, subsequent reforms saw the establishment of the Republic of Argentina, featuring autonomous provinces operating under the umbrella of a central government based in Buenos Aires, and banned slavery. The freed Africans being largely told to go fuck themselves and allowed to die from poverty related conditions to the point Afro-Argentines only make up 1% of the present population. Today, a heavily whitewashed national narrative ignores the role of African slave labour and the subsequent double-fucking-over of the people who did that labour in the wake of federation. In 1847, Argentine mariner Miguel Luis Pedro Buena sailed under the American whaling captain John Davison as far as 68 degrees south becoming the first of his nation to see Antarctica at the age of 15. His career as a mariner and a missionary saw a lot of the sparsely populated Patagonian region consolidated as part of Argentina, and he instituted the use of emergency shelters and supplies for stranded mariners as a signifier of an Argentine territorial claim on and Argentine government administration over otherwise unoccupied areas. In the 1860s, a fight with Paraguay saw a national armed forces arise out of disparate provincial militias and this served in suppressing any remaining native resistance to colonisation and governance by the Spanish-descended oligarchy. Foreign investment funded expanded beef and sheep farming with wool joining the list of exports funding the nation's financial ascendancy. In 1879, the Argentine government instituted the Instituto Geografico Nacional, headed up by Dr. Estanislao Zébalos. After taking part in Adolf North northeast passage transit aboard the Vega, Italian explorer Giacomo Bove petitioned Zébalos for his institute's support for an Antarctic expedition out of Argentina in 1880. Seeking to carry forward the work done south of Patagonia by James Clark Ross and then circumnavigating Antarctica heading westward, the Expedición Austral Argentina received the support of the Argentine president General Julio Argentino Roca, who headed up the fundraising committee and assigned the corvettes Uruguay and Cabo de Horno to the project. The government involvement reduced Beauvais's influence over planning and what started out as a scheme to circumnavigate Antarctica shrank to a plan for an extensive survey of the Patagonian coasts with a short visit to the Antarctic Peninsula if time permitted, and ended up being an extensive survey of Patagonian coasts aboard the Cabo de Horno, commanded by Luis Pedro Buena. Frustrated, Bove left the ship at Gregory Bay on April 5th and rode to Punta Arenas. He chartered a smaller ship, the San Jose, and departed south in May 1882, making me think it fortunate the ship was blown ashore while sheltering in Slogat Bay, as approaching Antarctica in June seems a recipe for shitty sailing in poor light for small returns in terms of new insights and charts. Beauvais petitioned the large and well-off expat Italian community in Argentina to support a second Antarctic expedition, which would really be his first one given he never got south of the Convergence in the austral summer of 1881-82. to 82. But nothing came of the attempt, and he fucked off to the Congo to collect intelligence on the potential for Italy to colonise territory there, and exotic diseases. While there was little scope for the former, there were ample examples of the latter, and his declining health saw him return to Italy in 1886, and suicide in 1887 at the age of 35. The boundary between Argentina and Chile is mountainous. A formal border was mostly mapped out in a treaty signed in 1881, but the sovereignty of three large islands, Picton, Lennox, and Nueva, at the mouth of the Beagle Channel, came into dispute in 1904, and this dispute lay simmering for the next 70 years, and will come back into the narrative in the lead up to the South Atlantic conflict in 1982. Austrian immigrant, mariner and astronomer, Professor Eugenio Bachmann of the University of Cordoba requested that the Instituto Geografica Nacional establish meteorological stations in Antarctica as a means to consolidate Argentine sovereignty over the American sector of the continent. He died in 1896 and never saw his adopted nation take up his proposed measures in the South, though the seed of the ideas he sowed may have prompted the alacrity with which Argentina accepted William Spears Bruce's offer of Ormond House at Lorry Island when the British weren't interested in picking up where the Scots left off. In 1896, the then President of the Instituto proposed a scientific expedition utilising the corvettes Uruguay and Cabo de Horno, but this was another non-starter because of the effects of the Bering crisis on the national economy. In November 1890, with Buenos Aires a very rich and culturally cosmopolitan city, and Argentina generally doing pretty well financially, the peso collapsed because Baring's Bank of London faced bankruptcy due to excessive investment in dodgy prospects in Argentina. A coalition of British banks intervened to guarantee Bering's debts, but Argentina's economy entered a recession as the credit lines dried up. In 1892, the Romanian emigre engineer, Julio Popper, proposed an Antarctic expedition to establish a whaling and sealing factory on the far side of the Drake Passage. Grown rich off gold mining in southern Patagonia, insulated against the recession by having both the gold and the mint by which to make his own currency, and growing richer off the back of a campaign of genocide he kicked off against the native Seltnam population, he stood as one of the few people in Argentina capable of starting up such an expensive venture in the wake of the Bering crisis, but he died of poisoning, likely at the hand of someone he dispossessed of their land, loved ones or share of profits, before he could get his maritime enterprise up and running. Link and company picked up the Dead Man's initiative, requesting permission to fish Argentine waters between 40 and 65 degrees south and seeking a concession to build a whaling factory on the South Shetlands. In 1894, Luis Neumeyer asked for government permission to make a survey of the natural resources of the South Shetland Islands. The government granted him this permission with the caveat that he not exploit those resources or take a cut from anyone else who exploited them off the back of his explorations. All 19th century attempts to get the government involved in establishing an Argentine presence in Antarctica failed, but that would change dramatically in the 20th century. As the series covered in episode 26, the Argentine government traded port support and ship's victuals for the presence of Argentine naval ensign Jose Maria Sobral as part of the Swedish Antarctic expedition. Sobral, the first representative of the Argentine government to sight Antarctica, began his two-year isolation at Snow Hill Island while the Scotia arrived to deliver its cargo of Scotsmen to Lorry Island. As the series covered in episode 27, Argentina graciously accepted the gracious offer of Ormond House from William Spears Bruce. While the stonework of Ormond House only remains as ruins, having been built too close to the shoreline and sequentially damaged by rare but compelling storm surges, the site on Lorry Island became the Argentine base, Orcadas station. Continuing the meteorological program kicked off by the Scots, and standing as the longest sustained national program of occupation below the Convergence, dating back to 1904. Nineteen-year-old Hugo Acuna served as the first postmaster at that Argentine presence, kicking off the philatelic history of Antarctica. Stamps and postmarks specific to Orcadus arose, much to the relief of Antarctic stamp collectors, whose albums lay necessarily empty up to that point. In the same way my Zingo Max collection has yet to get off the blocks, what Zingo Zingomax still awaiting invention. Sudden British interest in the recently ignored outpost just a few years later, when the Southern Ocean whaling boom came on like a train, reassured the Argentine government that paying the way for their staff at orcadas station constituted a sound investment. Argentina seized the opportunity to make its mark, both in the landscape with multiple markers and caches, and in European newspapers, when Lieutenant Julian Irizar returned from London, where he served as the Argentine Navy's attaché, and sailed the Corvette Uruguay south in search of the overdue Swedish expedition. As recounted in episode 26, he came across the survivors of the wreck of the Antarctic, shipfall, at Paulette Island, and sailed on from there to Snow Hill Island, to find Northern World's shore party and the Hope Bay hopefuls safe. Sabral, with two Antarctic winters under his belt, went home a national hero and remained celebrated in bronze form and on stamps and in the hearts and minds of Argentine nationals to this day. The corvette Uruguay sailed south regularly under the command of Captain Ismael Galindez, servicing Orqueda station and placing message caches for Charcot at Deception Island and among the Melchior archipelago. Charcot didn't tell the Argentine government about the damage he did to the hull of the Francais when he ran aground at Cape Tuxen, as sometimes happens to the best of us, and sold the ship to Argentina before returning to Europe and divorce on a steamer. The Argentine government intended using the ship to support its Antarctic programs, but it went aground in the River Plate just over a year after the sale and I don't think it was ever refloated, so the Uruguay stayed on in the role. Argentine private ventures continued heading south for whale-based profits throughout this period, but it was the institution of the Compania Argentina de Pesca in 1904 that really put the national economic stamp on the Southern Ocean. The company employed Carl Anton Larsson to command its first whaling vessels the Fortuna, and the Rolf and Louise. With 30 company employees, he started construction on the bones of a whale processing factory at Gritviken, the pots denoted in its Norwegian name being those left behind by previous cohorts of sealers and whalers more intent on quick profits than sustained ones. That the tragedy of the commons would play out in the southern ocean under the auspices of Larsen's industrial-scale implementation of his grisly trade would make those sustained profits short-term didn't factor into the business model of the Compañía Argentina de Pesca, though. The bulk of the whaling labour arose from Norway, but the financial investment arose in Argentina. The government put their back into the endeavour to the tune of a 1,000 tonnes of coal depoted at the factory site by the ship National Guard, commanded by Navy Lieutenant Alfredo P. Lamas. Larson received a salary... And the whalers received wages, but the profits provided a return on the initial investment going into Argentine coffers, particularly those of the partners, the banker Ernesto Tonquist, Norwegian expat Pedro Kristoffensen, Buenos Aires businessman Teodoro de Barry, and expat German Heinrich Schleiper. Newly awake to their precarious administrative claim to the newly exploited blubbery gold mine, The Brits sent the Royal Navy cruiser HMS Sappho into the situation in late January 1906. Commander of the Sappho, Captain Hodges, gave Larson half an hour to lower the Argentine flag flying proudly over the station, giving his own lowering it by naval gunfire as an alternative. Larson, as already recounted in episodes about whaling and his facultative nationality, felt loyalty only to his own profit motives and lowered the flag. Temporarily mollified, the Royal Navy departed. Investors petitioned the Argentine government to protest this gunboat diplomacy, but President Manuel Quintana, already old when voted to power and badly shaken by the almost successful Union Civica Radical revolution in 1905 and a subsequent direct attempt to assassinate him and his wife, died on the job, and the resulting upheavals overran the umbrage. No letter of protest went to the British consulate, likely eliciting a sigh of inertial relief from the Limey bureaucrats. The British government established an office to house administrative staff at Point Edwards near Gutviken and built a police station. While the dozens of hard case Norwegians held the numbers and the hardware necessary to oust their imperial neighbours, the uniforms, an important prop in any empire, prevented any uprising to contest the Union Jack flying over the Norse efforts, funded by Argentine investment. In August 1906, the British envoy delivered a note declaring the South Orkneys as British territory, but the Argentine government either declined to respond, or remained in such a state of higgledy piggledy that the note fell down the back of the couch, and no one remembered to follow up on the matter. In British bureaucrat terms, the non-response counted as a win, because it prompted no further action, and no one in their offices got yelled at, demoted, or posted to somewhere godforsaken, such as the magistrate's office at Edwards Point in South Georgia. In 1907, the Argentine Ministry of Agriculture issued a document fixing the salaries of staff at Orcadas station, buttressing effective Argentine administration in the region in a manner unlikely to draw notice from international parties paying attention to such matters. Between 1906 and 1908, Argentine and Chilean diplomats held several meetings to discuss a fair and equitable partitioning of the Antarctic Peninsula between their national interests. They never reached any firm agreement, but their interest in the area began to seed the idea of a Patagonian Antarctic Peninsula in international minds, no matter that those minds might find the idea anathematic. Britain responded with its 1908 Letters Patent defining and declaring the Falkland Islands dependencies, incorporating the Antarctic Peninsula. Turbulent decades of finger-pointing and soapboxing over financial inequality across the Argentine population saw populist politics oust the rich oligarchy from power, and after a century of elite rule, 1916 saw the Union Civica Radical in charge just in time for the First World War to cause the grain prices to collapse and the Republic of Argentina to fall into recession. The Russian October Revolution inspired a general strike of company workers at Gritviken in 1920 when 36 Russian laborers brought work to a standstill. They didn't try to form Soviets, but they held work in abeyance most effectively through the compelling nature of their Marxist rhetoric and by their willingness to beat the shit out of anyone who tried to stoke a boiler or flens a whale. Quote, The Magistrate's Office, South Georgia, 22nd January, 1920. Sir, I have the honour to report for the information of His Excellency the Administrator that on the 11th of January, 36 Russian labourers ceased work on the station of the Compania Argentina de Pesca at Gritviken and refused to take orders from the foreman. In the evening, a deputation approached the manager and demanded higher wages with new contracts and the old contracts to be returned wages to be 150 pesos gold per month without part of the catch and eight hours work per day. The manager offered to give them the wages asked for and change of contract but was not prepared to take off the part of the catch as the men would lose interest in the work. This they did not agree to and the following day they massed together and went over the station and threatened the men who were working, forcing them to join the strike. End quote. The Russians, calling themselves Bolshevists, drew signatures from all but three of the 220 labourers and a deputation of the strikers sought British support in their call for new contracts with the company and the deportation of the three dissenters. At the same time, the company petitioned the British presence for protection of the factory capital and stores, anticipating a riot. The only protection the British could offer took the form of visiting the station stores and removing the bolts from all the whale-killing rifles. The Russians held sway. Scabs got beaten up. Each whale-chaser returning from its hunt received a party of Bolshevists, who quickly convinced the crew to join the strike, leaving dozens of dead whales bobbing at the boy in the bay their oil gradually going rancid as putrefaction took hold. After seven days, the Latino and Norwegian labourers wanted to go back to work, but the Russians held the line against management. Other than the stemmed flow of royalty payments into British coffers, the magistrate didn't have a dog in the fight until the Bolshevists threatened one of the British staff with violence if they didn't get their new contracts sharpish. The Magistrate sent the British families to a neighbouring station and ensured his staff carried pistols at all times and sent a whale chaser to the Falklands to call for assistance, though help turned up before the boat could reach Stanley. HMS Dartmouth happened to be operating in the area and anchored up offshore on the 16th. With Royal Navy guns at his back, the Magistrate ceased trying to placate and stall the Bolshevists. Sixty of the labourers were deemed too great a future threat to sustained cash flow to British coffers, the strike already costing the company an estimated £20,000, and were earmarked for deportation and fines determined by the terms of their existing contracts. Fearing violence on the day of departure if the deportees didn't receive their full pay, the magistrate requested the commander of the Dartmouth, Captain Hope, put a contingent of Royal Marines ashore. In the armed presence of the marines, the strikers boarded the whale chaser with their pay, minus the fines, and without destroying the facility. The magistrate requested another warship visit before the end of the working season to help in any further pay negotiations. The strike at Gutviken made clear the desirability of radio communications in Southern Ocean operations and occupations. This need was underlined for Argentine interests by an accident at Orcadas Station in July 1921. Geologist Augusto Tapia left the accommodations to make meteorological observations but didn't return. His colleagues went out to search for him and found the scientist, hypothermic and frostbitten, down a crevasse. He survived his adventure but his fingers became gangrenous and required amputation an operation beyond the meagre first aid facilities and supplies, but absent any way to get word out before the next resupply vessel, due in October, the Orcadas personnel made do with what they had to hand. What Tapia had to hand was thumbs and nothing else, but he survived the surgery without anaesthesia and went on to a prolific career in his field, including the description of the dinosaur genus Notoceratops, though the holotype specimen disappeared and the monophyletic nature of the genus now seems a bit iffy. The Armada della Republica Argentina ship, Primero de Mayo, delivered the first radio set to Orcadus station in February 1925. Argentine bureaucrats could administer their southern ocean aegis in real-time as much as Morse code allows real-time messaging. If only that had millennial texters on the case to give them the abrevs long. Meteorological records can, if arriving quickly enough, serve in generating short-term meteorological forecasts, and the information broadcast from Orcada's station served to inform the whaling fleets of weather goings-on in the waters in which they hunted. The granularity wasn't great, but with weather forecasts, some information's better than nothing. The British government protested the use of radio at Orcadas station because they didn't apply for or pay for a British radio operator's licence. The Argentine government sensibly ignored this attempt at one-upmanship on the I'm-administering-this-space front, though they ensured they didn't actively snub the diplomats waiting for a response. Again, Britain was a major importer of Argentine meat, and no one in Argentina wanted to deal with adverse economic outcomes arising from failed détente over Southern Ocean fence-post pissing rights. In 1928, the Argentine post office at Orcada's station received International Postal Service recognition, allowing mail franked there to travel anywhere in the world instead of just throughout Argentina, though Britain protested. I'd like to speak to the host of Exploring Stamps about the process of recognising postal issues and franking as an international convention. We corresponded briefly a couple of years ago, but I fell off the planet for a bit, and I can't revive the dialogue, so Graham, if you're listening, please get in touch. I'll send you a $2 stamp from the 2006 Ross Sea Dependency issue in exchange for your insights in interview form. Former German naval aviator Gunther Pluschau the only successful prisoner of war to escape England and return to Germany in either world war made the first flights over Patagonia in late 1928. His aviation presence in southern South America arrived too late for Pluchauer to compete for the first flights over Antarctica, but his flights constituted sufficiently significant pioneering feats that he is still regarded as an important historical figure in Argentine aviation circles. He never got to take his Heinkel HD24 biplane further south, as he and engineer-cinematographer Ernst Dreblau died in a crash on the shore of Lake Argentino while attempting to land the seaplane. A replica of the Heinkel airframe, used in filming a recreation of his arrival in the city, is gradually succumbing to the weather at the Ushuaia Municipal Airport. Back on the mainland, strikes and social unrest characterised the ten years leading up to the Great Depression and the further economic higgledy-piggledy it imposed on the republic. Argentine military leaders, inspired by the fascist examples on show in Europe, kicked the radical party out of power in 1930, starting a decade of corrupt puppet governance, its figurehead leaders in thrall to the military strongmen, a period ended by the rise of Juan Perón, more of whom, Anon. Where Argentine mariners held no record of exploration and discovery below the circle or even around the peninsula prior to 1900, the nation's closeness to Antarctica and the way the longest axis of the country sort of points toward the longest axis of the Antarctic Peninsula makes an association between the two places more intuitive than most territorial claims on the continent, with the exception of Chile, a nation which holds sovereignty over islands that are even closer by a few tens of nautical miles a nation with a much narrower longitudinal spread, and therefore an even pointier pointiness for what that's worth in terms of territorial claim recognition on an international stage. Argentine interests continued to expand on South Georgia. Six main whaling stations existed in the island's fjords by this point. Investment came from many nations, but victuals and chandlery came almost exclusively from Argentina. And the largest factory town, Larson's Enterprise at Gridviken, featured, at its peak, a hospital, a cinema, a baker, a butcher, a library, a floating dock, three wharves, soccer pitches, and a hydroelectric generator station. Private sector occupation is perceived differently to a government presence under the Hughes Doctrine, but Argentina definitely felt South Georgia fell under its aegis based on the presence of its money and citizens and the regular shuttling of supply vessels keeping the whalers in food and clothing and all the raw materials required to kill and process whales working in and out of Argentine ports. The Argentine government capitalised on this national sentiment of ownership by establishing a meteorological station on South Georgia in 1923. In 1927, Argentina made an explicit claim to the Antarctic sector between 25 degrees west and 74 degrees west a sector incorporating the bulk of the Antarctic Peninsula, known in Argentina as Tierra de San Martín, and most of the Waddell Sea. Overlapping the territorial interests of Britain and Chile, neither competing nation passed comment on this official declaration for fear of prompting further action. Argentina also let the matter lie at that until goaded to act by events in the lead-up to and the early stages of the Nazi war in Europe the large German expatriate population in Argentina, a historical antipathy to Britain over the South Atlantic Islands the British called the Falklands and which the Argentines called Malvinas, and the British attempt to garrison Buenos Aires in the early 19th century, made Argentina, while officially neutral, likely to favour Germany in the looming war that Hitler was clearly about to kick off. This pro-German sentiment was particularly true in the early years of the conflict, when Nazi forces seemed to be making uncontestable gains. The 1938-39 German expedition, seeking to expedite the Woltart FAT plan at the Southern Ocean's expense, put the wind up the Argentine government. While better disposed to Nazi Germany than most other nations with a stake in Antarctica, the Argentine government didn't like the idea of the whales potentially going through Argentine or Argentine-funded blubber digesters, yielding their wealth to Germany. The Second World War prevented Argentina needing to write Germany a sternly worded letter, let alone acting to reinforce its standing as a southern ocean whale owner, but the knock-on effects of the Nazi presence in Antarctica held greater motivating power for Argentina in knock-on form. Richard Byrd's Third Antarctic Expedition, the USA, itself a reaction to the voyage of the Schwabenland, prompted the Argentine government to establish an Antarctic Commission drawing on the resources and expertise of the Navy, the Bureau of Meteorology and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in order to prepare a case for an Antarctic territorial claim to present at a conference slated for 1940 in Norway. The German invasion of Norway saw the conference cancelled, but the Commission formally incorporated as the National Antarctic Committee, a three-member body headed up by Isidoro Ruiz Moreno of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and continued to draw resources together to make as compelling a case as possible that Argentina should be recognised as owning Antarctica. Argentine diplomats called on British and Chilean officials to convene a meeting to thrash out the overlapping territorial claims, but 1940s Britain held other priorities, forcing a polite demurral, likely something of a relief to British bureaucrats, as the Argentines were likely to bring up Orcadas station on Lorry Island long and loud, which would be embarrassing, given they'd snubbed William Spears Bruce when he offered Ormond House to the British government in 1904. Chile and Argentina agreed to convene a meeting on the matter regardless, putting the wind even further up the British officials. The results of the meeting, released in March 1941, announced that Argentina and Chile would jointly seek to consolidate their nation's sovereignty over their Antarctic zone which sounds very forward-thinking and progressive until you learn how underhanded they got in their dealings with each other over the matter. In mid-July 1941, that the civilian staff at Orcadas station would henceforth be replaced with a naval contingent because official. Where a landowner wouldn't tolerate the garrisoning of another nation's military personnel on land they held a recognised claim to, the Argentine government knew Britain couldn't afford to address the personnel swap at that moment, but it didn't go unnoticed by Britain's foreign office. Britain, besides spreading itself thin to keep at bay the Luftwaffe and the Kriegsmarine, didn't want to upset Argentine interests, and thereby jeopardise the urgently needed Argentine food imports helping keep the island nation fed, so another Argentine step toward territorial claim credibility went unremarked. Emboldened by this British silence, the Argentine navy sent the Primero de Mayo into the South Shetlands and the Gurlash Strait in the series of voyages recounted at the start of episode 107, counted in turn by visits by the Carnarvon Castle, counted in turn by visits by the Primero de Mayo, and so on. Chilean lieutenants sailing with the Argentine ship to observe their Patagonian cousins' efforts to reinforce Patagonian sovereignty over the islands and peninsula were kept in the dark as much as their Argentine maritime hosts could manage regarding the territorial claims and activities. Being naval officers, they weren't easy to hoodwink, and they reported to Santiago and to British intelligence in Santiago about the flags, proclamations, beacons and paint they saw their Patagonian counterparts strew about the landscape. Something I didn't mention in episodes recounting the voyages of the Primero de Mayo was a visit made to Stonington Island where the materials left behind by the U.S.A. were ransacked in spite of the firm but polite note left behind by Richard Black requesting that that exact thing not happen. Some of the equipment was returned to the USA, as per Black's written instructions, but I suspect the bulk of the chocolate and what passed for porn in that era never made it off ship. I figure the BGLE hut on Barry Island, also in the Nini Fjord, either went unnoticed or proved difficult to reach, as it remained unmolested. The Argentine government kept word of the naval voyages out of the press until March 1942, at which point the bulk of Argentina applauded the Navy's bold moves to piss on the South Atlantic fence posts, while the previous Alpha Bulldog was involved in a big fight with a vicious Doberman and a rabid Kai Ken. Argentine naval hydrographers began preparing a new set of charts of survey and sounding data gathered around Deception Island and the Antarctic Peninsula. Britain, busy with German forces in North Africa and Japan's capture of Singapore, didn't react until mid-year when Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden formally told the Argentine government that British postal services would not recognise mail Frank at Orcada's station. O shots fired and I was being sarcastic there. Argentina's new map of Deception Island went to the printers as Operation Tabarin began its occupation of the former whaling station buildings depicted on that map, though British interests dismissed the new document as being drawn from an existing British map, itself drawn from an earlier French one. And this leads me to a digression on fake sac which I may have already made, but I'm not sure. I don't know when the practice kicked off, but somewhere in the storied history of map making, cartographers hit upon the idea of adding non-existent features to their maps as a form of copyright protection. A non-existent cul-de-sac became the innocuous feature of choice to include in a new map. Unlikely to lead to navigational errors, hard to spot, tiresome to ground truth, and easy to point to as evidence of plagiarism if someone produced a map featuring the same cartographic fiction, since the likelihood of two cartographers generating the same false feature, nomenclature and associated landmarks by chance, effectively run to zero. And it's this neat cartographic copycat detection system that inspired me to occasionally incorporate a quirky, non-critical factoid into episodes of Ice coffee, so I can spot which Antarctic history lecturers have been neglecting their primary sources and cribbing from this series. (laughs) James Cook, what an unlikely name. And the number of people I've seen banging on about the farm boy master navigator from Whitby. As if. Back on the mainland, appealing to the poor to engage in political activity and government reform, Juan and Eva Perón presided over a decade of Argentine development Lauded as the people's president by supporters, and derided as a totalitarian dictator by the wealthy, Perón became increasingly brutal in the suppression of opposition and critique, eventually threatening civil war as a means to counter the machinations of his enemies. In September 1946, President Perón decreed that any map of Argentina published from that date forward must incorporate the Argentine Antarctic territorial claim a similar public consciousness-raising gambit as issuing Antarctic-themed stamps or putting Sir Douglas Mawson on Australia's first $100 notes. Keep the territorial claim in the public eye and on the public's mind to develop a subconscious national sense of ownership. Less easily kept in sight, President Perón declared Argentine sovereignty over the benthos between Argentina and Antarctica and on the waters overlying that benthos something you can at least see at the surface, for about 12 nautical miles, depending on your elevation. Last time I mentioned territorial waters, they were defined by the artillery of the day, mostly comprising a 3 nautical mile limit, with some nations predicting increasing artilleryal range, and opting for 4, and in one case, a 7 mile territorial waters boundary. Presently, nations with coasts claim 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zones And under that model, President Peron's decree makes sense if, and I spelt and pronounced that with two Fs to denote if and only if, you accept Argentine Antarctic territorial claims as valid, because the two 200 nautical mile EEZs would overlap when taken from both the southernmost tip of Argentina and the northernmost tip of its Antarctic territorial claim. Just. But the 400 nautical mile extension of fishing Navigation and extraction rights covering the shortest straight-line distance between Argentina and its desired Antarctic territories made this a big jump in maritime territorial ambitions in its day. Perón's claim, when mapped out, incorporated all the islands in the Scotia arc, including the Falklands, Malvinas, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands, the South Orkneys and the South Shetlands, in addition to the Antarctic sector incorporating the peninsula and the Weddell Sea. In early 1947, the Argentine Navy sent three ships south, led by the Patagonia, to further buttress Argentine sovereignty in the claimed area by establishing a meteorological station in the Melchior Islands. Finding a Chilean flag painted on a wooden board on Gamma Island within the Melchior Group the Argentine sailors placed an equivalent board painted with their national traband next to it, assuring the Chilean observers hosted by the expedition that together their two nations would protect Patagonian interests in Antarctica against the intervention of the perfidious British, which is an adjective I added, but which I doubt lies out of step with the sentiments expressed on the day. After establishing, stocking and staffing the new base, still in place though only intermittently occupied today, the ships moved on to Dumier Island at the entrance to Port Lockroy, where they built a lighthouse, which is a grander phrase than the beacons dotted about the Antarctic Peninsula generally deserve. Present day examples comprise an automatic lantern and a solar panel charged battery bank to light it, mounted in a modular fibreglass structure that can stand up to the low temperatures, strong winds, salt spray and UV light bombardment so common to the latitudes. I'd like to know what 1947 automated remote lighthouse technology comprised. The reading continues. The expedition returned to a jubilant reception in the streets of Buenos Aires and a stirring speech by the President. In July 1947, Argentina and Chile agreed to adjust their territorial claims in the south to end the overlap, so much the better to present a defensible position to the perfidious British and the similarly perfidious United States of America, and any other perfidious nations that chose to raise their perfidious claims of perfy-perfidness. As with territorial claims over the islands at the mouth of the Beagle Channel, allegedly settled at the start of the 20th century, this attempt at sorting out the boundaries didn't play out smoothly, and the Argentine and Chilean Antarctic territorial claims overlap to this day, receiving no recognition outside the claimant nations. I think that probably warrants wrapping up there for now. I'll give Chile a similar treatment in subsequent episodes, hopefully, giving listeners a sound footing for considering subsequent Patagonian activities in the Southern Ocean as the series progresses. Sending out greetings to John this episode, who I'm very pleased to be port sampling with once more. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is best avoided.